Welcome to Walk, a podcast sounding out smart policy and the people behind it. I'm Edward Greenspan. Over my career, I've had some political setbacks. I've had other challenges that have not been easy. I've had failures and defeats as well as modest victories. And I've tried to keep a pretty even keel. Bob Ray, Canada's ambassador to the United Nations, has emerged as one of the country's most articulate statesmen. He provides an unusually strong voice on the world stage today. He is, of course, a former NDP member of Parliament, Premier of Ontario, interim leader of the Liberal Party, a lawyer, an author, a special envoy on humanitarian and refugee issues in Sri Lanka and Myanmar. Those are just some of the positions he's held over a 45-year career, largely in public service. His job today as United Nations Ambassador may be among the most consequential, coming at a time of increasing tension, conflict, and great power rivalry in the world. From the invasion of Ukraine to the war between Israel and Hamas, Bob Ray is having a moment where he speaks his mind, often passionately, fearlessly, and when he speaks for Canada, it's with a rare and often critical clarity. Welcome, Ambassador Ray. Oh, thank you, Ed. Not sure I recognize the person in the introduction, but I appreciate it, nevertheless. There is a lot going on in the world, and you're close to uh, so much of it. Uh, Ukraine, Israel, Hamas, uh, disinformation. You've remarked in past that it's hard for it not to affect you on an emotional level. So uh, how are you doing? Well, it's ironic you would ask me that question. I just finished a staff meeting where I, I had difficulty finishing a few sentences. Because of the personal stress I think we're all under, dealing with the horrendous levels of violence that we're seeing in the world today, the incredible cruelty that people are showing for each other is just unbelievable. And I think at the same time, there's just a very natural frustration that I feel, I think other people feel as well, is our institutions are very imperfect. Our ability to stop conflict quickly and to intervene effectively, which was sort of the dream that people had in 1945, that's been proven to be very, very difficult. And I think it would be an unusual, an unusually insensitive person who would just go through these things saying, oh, this is just what happens, just keep going. So, I mean, at one level, I'm pretty good over my career. I've had some, as you may know, some political setbacks. I've had other challenges that have not been easy. I've had failures and defeats as well as modest victories. And I've tried to keep a pretty even keel, and I'm trying now. But I must confess, I think it's challenging for everybody. I think it's challenging for our staff members. I think it's challenging for people in the field. I think it's challenging for our humanitarian workers who are working everywhere globally. These are tough times for people to perform public service and to avoid danger and risk and also to do the job that has to be done. And that's not easy. Well, um, good on all of you for rising to the occasion. You know, you mentioned the UN and, and how it's doing and I'll say a hard way. I was going to ask you how it's doing also in a soft way and how life at the UN has changed given the, uh, the very emotional issues that are in play right now. What's it like just getting along with people and interacting with people and going to lunch or not going to lunch? I would say that the diplomatic representatives here are extremely professional. We know that 
our governments disagree. We know that we have competing opinions on a whole variety of subjects. And we know that our job is to try to reach out so that at any given moment, if the minister says, tell me what, what is so-and-so thinking at the moment, I can pick up the phone and say, how's it going? And let me know and have a chat and have a coffee, have a lunch. And that life goes on. And I'd say that it's still the hallmark of work at the UN. It's quite a remarkable thing. I sort of compare it to being like on a, on a cruise ship, you know, you're, you're cruising for four or five years with people who come and go, they get off at a certain stop, they get back on, other people get on. And you know that to make life tolerable, you have to figure out how, to, how am I going to get on in this crazy world? But having said that, I think we have to understand that there are a lot of fissures and divides and divisions that have gotten more serious as time has gone on. There's many ways in which the world is being pulled apart geopolitically uh, and in many other ways. And then we had the invasion of Ukraine, which is a terrible event in the history of the world because it's one of the most naked aggressions and attack by one neighbor on another that we've ever seen with devastating impact in terms of Ukraine, but a very devastating impact in terms of the global economy. I think the Hamas-Israel conflict has been particularly painful because it's so resonant of what is, after all, the oldest conflict at the UN, which is the conflict between Israel and its neighbors. That was a conflict in 1945 when the British announced that they were giving up the mandate. It was top of the agenda in the UN from 45 until today. And politically, it's still the most charged debate. And because of the circumstances and because of the always rhetorical headwinds that one's hits in this issue, it's been very, very difficult. Let's just go back to the emergency session on October 27th, which you'll remember well, Canada abstaining from a motion calling for humanitarian truce in Gaza after it failed, after you as ambassador were not able to muster support for an amendment that would have also condemned attacks by Hamas. How did Canada come to put forward such an amendment? Well, it was really a matter of looking at the resolution. We were not directly involved in negotiating the resolution. That was done by the Jordanians on behalf of the Arab countries and uh, the EU with a number of us putting forward some suggestions. But the EU was actually at the table as they are by custom at the UN. It's the EU and, and the Arab group and the OIC that get together and produce all these resolutions on Israel-Palestine every year. And one of the things that I made clear to everybody was if there was no direct reference to Hamas hostages and terrorism in a sentence that was coherent, we wouldn't be able to support the resolution. If I might ask, is that something you have license to do as ambassador? Or is that something you get instructions from Ottawa? No, 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 no. That's I discussed with Ottawa whether that was something I could say. <laughs> whether that was going too far. Or... You initiated that conversation with Ottawa, I infer. Okay. Well, but I mean, Ottawa was interested in it too. It's a combined position. I mean, there were obviously discussions with the US, with Israel, with other countries, of some European countries, the Brits and others, about how could we possibly talk about a resolution that didn't make reference to Hamas in the active part of the resolution. So once we had agreement on that, and then we, we had to decide well, how simple do we make the amendment and not include everything in the amendment that some people would have liked to see? But my view was, no, let's keep it as simple as possible. Let's just have an up or down vote and see 
how many countries we can convince in really what was a 24-hour effort. We got 88 votes. We didn't get two-thirds. We calculate we're probably about five votes short of two-thirds. While we didn't get it included in the resolution, we did have a majority of members of the United Nations voting in favor of naming Hamas, naming terrorism, and naming the hostages as critical issues. And that, I think, came as a bit of a surprise to some people who said that the opinion against Israel would be so strong that nobody would vote in favor of it. And that wasn't the case at all. Okay, well, true enough. But at the end of the day, we vote against the motion itself. And we're in a tiny minority of countries that do so. We didn't vote against the motion itself. I'm sorry, we abstained on that. We abstained on the motion. And there were about 50 countries who agreed with that abstention. So we were not alone. We abstained because we wanted to emphasize, again, I know it sounds, this may sound like sort of diplomatic jargon, but actually an abstention can actually be an active thing. Because In abstaining, what you're really saying is there are elements of this resolution that everybody can agree with, and there are elements of it that are missing, or there are things that are in it that we can't support. So the voting on resolutions is not a sort of an up and down simple thing. It's more complicated, but we also have to explain to Canadians why we're doing what we're doing. And I think it's fair to say that many Canadians would have said what you said was, why did you vote against the resolution on a humanitarian truce? And the answer is we didn't. We abstained. And they say, well, that's the same thing. And you say, no, actually, it's not. But you have to accept the fact we did not vote in favor of it. And and the reason was not because out of spite, because our amendment was rejected, but because of substance, because there's a gaping hole in the resolution. And I think that was right. I think there is a gaping hole in that resolution. You know, you have been resolute in the need to, you know, I think you would say speak truth about what's happened and to be candid about how things started. You've been outspoken about the origin of the explosion at the hospital in mid-October and even the role ascribed to Iran and the Hamas attacks. It hasn't sounded like the same language striving for even more balance that we've seen from all quarters in the Canadian government. So I just want to ask you if you and the government are on the same page here. Yes. I don't do anything without the support of the government. Well, on Tuesday night in Ottawa at the Rideau Club in October, you were quite adamant about having to wait and reserve judgment to know what happened. And I believe there were people in the government who were not as cautious in doing that and didn't say anything till the following Saturday. Well, I mean, there's, what can I say? I mean, I am who I am, and but I can only tell you that Minister Jolie and Mr. Trudeau and I and have discussions and we work it out in terms of, well, what is what is the right approach? And I take my instructions from the government. The votes that we take are made by a decision of the government of Canada. They're not made by me personally. And although I do sometimes add sentences to some speeches that I'm given to read, it's all within a limit. And there's sometimes when I'm told, no improvising here, this is a statement you have to read. And I'll say, fine, and that's not a problem. That isn't to say that I don't sometimes misspeak or say the wrong thing or make a mistake. That that happens too. I don't think that's what you're saying here, that you've made a mistake. I think, you know, you've said you are who you are. And I just wonder, how do you come to be who you are on these issues? You have very strong feelings about Ukraine. You have very strong feelings about Israel. These are feelings that, if I remember correctly, were part of your break with the NDP a number of years back. Where does all that come from? I don't know. It's who I am. I always try to educate myself. I try to learn. I try to read a lot. 
try to listen as much as possible. I think sometimes it's also a product of experience. I mean, sometimes I, I find that there are people who come up with some instant things. They say, what should I say in the scrum? You know, MPs will sometimes ask me, what should I say in the scrum? I said, you don't have to do a scrum. <laughs> you know, the world is not sitting on the edge of their chair waiting for you to, for, for you to talk. And you can't really get hammered for what you don't say. <laughs> so sometimes if, it's wiser just not to say anything. I think that my critics would say, and I think there are people who've known me for a long time will say, well, sometimes you should say a little bit less. And I'm sure that's a fair comment. But I also think there's something to be gained by people knowing that if there's a tweet that's been put out by me, it's been put out by me. It hasn't been put out by my staff. It hasn't been put out by somebody who's trying to you know, mince words. It's put out by me. Sometimes I say the wrong thing. But I, I think for the most part, I mean, not even Babe Ruth batted a thousand. So, you know, <laughs> I think I tend to be a little more gentler on myself, perhaps, than my critics. But I do think there's a value to communicating directly with people. Although I would say, Ed, on this one thing, on social media, I, I do think that it's become more of a cesspool than ever before. And I, I'm not enough of an expert to know why that is, but I do think that we're in a new, a new level of hatred and misinformation and, and ad hominem attacks and personal assaults on people that I do notice and see, and I can see it in the last month. No conflict gives rise to more of this than the conflict in the Middle East. Right. And the divisions that we're seeing in Canadian society and other countries as well, obviously, they're pretty profound. The people who are marching in the streets, people who are concerned about Palestine, people who are concerned about anti-Semitism at home, whole hosts of issues without a lot of empathy, it seems, you know, for one another necessarily. How do you see you know, someone who spent a lot of time in public life and has seen the public agitated and calmed and agitated and calmed, how do you see this healing? Because it, it seems very profound now, that the, uh, the divisions. When you say, how does it heal? I don't think we know how it heals in the era of, of social media. There is an irrationality to two million hits on a video that no one even knows whether that's a real video. We don't know whether it's an AI-generated video. Is it a bot-generated video? And so when people say, how does that heal? My answer is, honestly, I don't know. And I think people of my generation have a hard time with it because we, we don't fully understand it. But we also have enough of a memory to know that this is kind of crazy, the way these trauma are shared, the way in which people react and by necessity sometimes overreact and the way in which there are huge swings of feeling and opinion. The madness of crowds we're seeing now is without parallel in, in human history in its ability to, to just get sent around the world and back and forth and back and forth and just repeat itself over and over. It's very difficult, particularly if you're addicted to the social media, which I am successfully curing myself of because even I look at it and say, this is nuts. Are you weaning yourself off? Yeah, I mean, quite substantively because First of all, if you spend your nights and days and nights reading it, you will just go nuts. And secondly, because I have successfully been able to use it as a means of communicating in a relatively particular way. But I find now that my voice is just getting drowned out in a wave of hatred. And you just look at it and say, this is not what I signed up for. It doesn't mean I'm abandoning it because I don't think you should. But it does mean we have to look at it with a degree of perspective.
Let's turn to Ukraine for a couple of moments. And of course, there's relationships in these conflicts. And one of the ones I wonder how you're feeling is whether public attention is being drawn away from Ukraine in a way that's perhaps dangerous for that cause. Yes, I do think it is. I think that it's also not just public attention. It's it's to what extent governments, as a reflection of public opinion, and governments do reflect public opinion, to what extent governments are able to maintain a degree of focus on a number of different issues at the same time. And I think that's a real challenge. I think it's a challenge for us as individuals. We all know that if we don't pay attention to each one of our kids, they'll say, you know, you like my sister better than you like me. And, and so you say, no, 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 no. So you then have to make sure that you're paying attention to everybody. And that's really the situation we find in the UN. I mean, to be honest, there are deep concerns among many countries not just Ukraine. There are many, many countries that are in the middle of serious conflict where they don't have an inch of media space and not an inch of public attention. And in many cases, the number of people dying is even greater than our attention span is able to maintain. And I always say to people, one of the jobs that we have as people who understand this phenomenon is to say to people, you have to be able to look at a range of issues and not drop them simply because the swing of opinion is all the way over on, nobody cares about this, people only care about that. And you say, yeah, but this is still a problem. And if we take our eye off that ball for too long, we're going to lose the momentum and the thread that we need to maintain. So, I mean, I have been one of those people who feels very strongly that we need to look at a series of conflicts in a connected way and we need to be able to understand the global implications. What is that connection? I mean, are you talking about the conflicts that we've been discussing in a connected way? Well, I don't think you can look at the conflict in the Middle East without looking at Iran and looking at Russia. I don't think you can look at the conflict in Ukraine without looking at Russia and without looking at Iran. These are countries that have built military and technological and informational and very real alliances that have agents and agencies that work on their behalf. And they are in a position to foment trouble where there's a vacuum. Let me give you one classic example. The area known as the Sahel, which is the largely desert area across all the way from Senegal to Somalia. And the French have had a terrible time. The UN has had a terrible time in providing stability and security to that part of the world. And when that starts to happen, the autocratic leaders who now run many of those countries go to Russia, they go to the Wagner Group, and they go to others who they think will provide them with more help and more assistance in dealing with the degree of conflict. And I think it's fair to say that there were many people at the UN and in other parts of the world, many countries that said to major powers, you have to stay involved, you have to stay engaged. We can't afford to take our eye off this because if we do, others will fill that vacuum. And I think one of the mistakes that we make in policy is in thinking, well, we don't want to do this. And so you don't do it. And then you have to think about if I don't do it, who else will? And what will they want to do with the situation? As you said at the beginning, these are very tough times with very tough issues. And I guess to return to some of the discussion at the beginning of this podcast, I wonder you, Bob Ray, ambassador, human being, 
What are you learning about yourself in these times? I think the most important thing, uh, two things. I think on a very personal level, my journey, for anybody who's interested, I mean, I started out as a high school student at an international school. I went to school in the States, in Washington, D.C., and then I went to school in Geneva to an international school, and my dad was at the U.N. And I kind of spent a lot of time reacting to some of those experiences and thinking that I needed to settle in Canada and be focused on Canadian issues. And then as time has gone on, I've become more and more re-engaged with the life of the world. And I realize that that's what I do. That's where I belong. That's how I think. And I, for me, coming here to the UN has been a truly rejuvenating experience in that it's allowed me to, to re-engage with the world as a whole and not just see it from a distance. Second thing I've learned, I think, about myself more than I realized is that I am an emotional person and I do get affected by what's happening. And I find that my emotions, if anything, are a little more exposed because of the challenges that the world faces. And I'm having to constantly try to understand that I'm only as good as my ability to marshal my energies and emotions allow me to be. And that means pacing myself. It means letting other people get the credit, letting others come forward. I have a terrific staff here. I have a lot of wonderful people that I work with and, you know, sharing my experiences with them and letting them be and letting them come forward and express themselves and, and say, you think you're wrong about this or why don't we talk about it? And I'm finding myself much more able to deal with some of that than perhaps I might have been as a younger person. I'm a little less certain of things now than I was when I was 30 or 35, which I suppose is a good thing. As you cope with all this and you're in a place where your father was the ambassador before you, does he loom larger for you? He looms. Yes, he does. But in a, if I may say so, for those people who've known me for a long time, in a very positive way. My dad and I you know, had our disagreements about some things. All teenagers coming up wanted to find themselves as being, you know, not like my dad. I mean, I played the piano. My dad played the piano. I like to tell jokes. My dad used to like to tell jokes. And I realized more and more that this is fine. This is who I am. I'm proud to be his son. And I know that he himself had a lot of wisdom and a lot of human insight. And he was extremely generous personally with his time and with his attention to other people. And a number of people have said this to me over the years. So I take his example much more positively than perhaps I would have as a younger person. And I'm really proud of my dad. And I'm very proud to be his son. And I'm happy to be able to say that. Well, I'm sure that he would be very proud of you right now. And we're very thankful for the work that you're doing. And I, uh, you have been very generous with your time today, Ambassador. We wish you and the world with which you're engaged the best. And thank you very much for being with us. Thank you so much, Ed. Good to talk to you. Take good care. Bob Ray is Canada's ambassador to the United Nations. He joined us from New York. This is Wonk. I'm Edward Greenspawn. New episodes drop Thursdays.